so my goal this week is to give a little bit of an introduction to where we're going this summer, maybe a little bit of a foundation of why we're going in the direction we're going this summer. And on your way out, you can grab, uh, there's a bunch of these on the little table there. I should have put them up five minutes sooner than I did. Uh, but this gives you the schedule for the summer and the different speakers that we have coming. And uh, here's kind of the goal. What, how are we going to talk about teens and young people for 10 weeks? And I think there is plenty to talk about. Right, that as a church, you know, one of the things, you may or may not be aware of this, right, but that um, the vast majority of Christians come to know the Lord, depending on the study you look at, either by the time they're 18 or by the time they're 21, depending on the study you look at. Uh, the majority of Christians have made that commitment by that age. But at the same time, we also know statistically the highest point of drop-off uh, from people disappearing from the church is somewhere around that same age as well, kind of when they go off to college. And we'll explore a little bit more what some of the reasons are those young people say that they leave the faith, why they leave church. But uh, I think there are some things that we can dive into as, as a church of like, what are we doing to prioritize uh, creating an environment where young people have the best chance of plugging into long-term faith? Right? What are some of the things? What are some of the pieces? It doesn't guarantee it, right? Like you can do everything right, and uh, and it's still free will. Individuals, that, you know, that's the. Uh, I talk to my mom sometimes who expresses that frustration of she has four kids, and we turn out very differently, right? Like we went in very different directions, and so she'll blame herself for uh, some of the stuff that goes on with some of the brothers. And I'm like, yeah, but look at me. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> My sister's the favorite. She's the princess. But, but, uh, but you know, it's all four of us receive the exact same uh, environment, you know, the home, the whatever, and yet we take very different paths, right? And so you can do everything right, or you can do everything wrong. And I, I've seen situations where I, I, I do not understand how this kid is turning out so well, right? Um, and then they all try to go to Dunkin' Donuts in different vehicles <laughs> earlier this week. All right, so, so what I do want to clarify, though, is uh, sometimes when people hear a series on kids or teens, they go, okay, it's a parenting series. This is not a parenting series. Uh, is definitely the, my intent is for you know, a mix of every generation from this church to hear what we're talking about this summer. Right, that it's applicable to all of us, that, that there are things, the more that we understand, the more that we look into, the better equipped as a church we're going to be to be reaching this next generation for Christ. Uh, it's a whole church issue if we take God's great commission seriously and his love for every single person created in his image. And churches are a unique environment in that they're one of, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but what is going on this morning, especially in this room above us, uh, is one of the only places in our culture where so many generations are gathered and interacting together at the same time, right? Like if you think about it, for the most part, you know, maybe in our workplace there's a span of a couple generations, uh, but for the most part, we're kind of isolated in a lot of ways, especially for young people. Young people, for the most part, spend almost all of their time around other people within a year or two of their age. Um, 
in school, in, in you know, sports, community, wherever they are, uh, the church is one of the only places where multiple generations gather and interact. The typical Sunday morning here, we'll see members of the greatest generation, baby boomers, Gen Xers, uh, millennials, Generation Z. Uh, now we have Generation Alpha, in case some of you are like, how many generations are there? Generation Z are those young people that are born between 1999 to 2015. So our youth group right now is Generation Z. They're starting to go to college and, and finish college. Right? Uh, it's a beautiful thing having such a mix of people, uh, but it can also be a challenge. Mark Matlock, who was here the other year, and David Kinneman uh, wrote in their book, uh, quote, the stereotypes between generations can be barbaric, end quote. Uh, and they go on to share in this book uh, that when uh, prompted to share opinions about younger generations, older adults tend to, quote, let the mud start to sling. Uh, and this isn't unique to today, right? Uh, I, was, I was looking, this has gone on for thousands of years. Aristotle wrote in the fourth century BC, uh, they think they know everything and are always quite sure about it, right? <laughs> the, uh, somebody else wrote in an article in 1925 in the US, we defy anyone who goes about with his eyes open to deny that there is as never before an attitude on the part of young folk which is best described as grossly, thoughtless, rude, and utterly selfish. Uh, in 1947, in the Shield Daily News, uh, in an article called Why Do Young People Neglect Religion? So even this issue has been one talked about for generations. How to bring young people into membership of the church was a pressing problem raised at a meeting Sunday school teachers in the audience had found that children were apt to leave Sunday school when they had completed their day school education. They were not following on into the church. Uh, and then the last one I saved is uh, from 1936 in the Portsmouth Evening News. Probably there is no period in history in which young people have given such emphatic utterance to a tendency to reject that which is old and to wish for that which is new. Right? That there's just kind of this... Uh, there's a tendency for older generations to have a negative view of young people. Uh, and at the same time, Kinnaman and Matlock note that younger generations are, quote, less likely to hold negative opinions and stereotypes of older adults. I, I wanted to be like, see, so we're so much nicer. And then, as my kids remind me, I'm super old. So uh, I don't get to be counted as part of that group uh, not holding now, young people, uh, Sarah Farmer wrote, young people want to be seen, loved, accepted, valued, and invited to participate in something beyond themselves. And they can tell when their voices are not valued. And so part of the point, I think, of today is even thinking about how do we view young people? How do we uh, look at them? How do we, you know, kind of, you know, when they're in the room, or are we happy that they're here, how do we interact, how do we talk about them? Not even necessarily to their face, but to each other, right? Uh, in Matthew 18, one through six, uh, there's a passage that I have found slightly terrifying my entire ministry career. Uh, it, Jesus, uh, it says about that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. 
So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now there's an entire sermon right there about what is childlike faith and what does that mean, and, and, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, and then he goes on to say, and anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, uh, some translations put it, uh, if you cause him to stumble, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea, which is a terrifying image, right? And there's a part of me that struggles with uh, looking back, oh man, 22 years of youth ministry, there have probably been some moments where I've caused some young people to stumble, right? Through comments I've made or words I've done or things I've said or thought. And, and oh man, this is a weighty thing that God is giving to us, going, man, it, it, he values these young people as much as he values us. They're created in his image. And what are we doing to help them flourish as opposed to stumble? Uh, adolescence is an incredible time. And, and I think it's important for us to know that what our teenagers are experiencing today, as much as we think we might understand it, we really don't. Like none of us have lived in the world that teens live in today. Uh, you know, I've been a youth pastor for 22 years. I graduated from high school in 93. Uh, I started at my first church in 2001. And even at that point, I was immediately like caught off guard by already the world that they were operating in was far different than the teenage world that I had, right? Just the arrival of high-speed internet in their homes. And we didn't even have cell phones really widespread yet at that point. Uh, the pressures, all of these things have gotten exponentially more and more so. Teens are far more busier today than we were when we were teenagers. And so there's a lot more pressures, a lot more things going on. And the temptation sometimes, and I, sometimes I do this with my own kids, is to want to be like, you know, when they're complaining, yeah, 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 I know. I lived, well, I, I didn't really live what they're living, right? It's a whole different world. In adolescence, is a complicated uh, period of time. And because of, you know, different soci sociological things and whatever, it, it keeps prolonging, right? It used to be like 12 or 13 years old till 18 or 20, and now they're saying it's like 10 or 11 till 28, uh, where there, there's just a lot going on. And uh, whether or not you, you, you probably know this, but Outside of the first couple of years of our lives when we're like a baby and we double and triple in size in the space of a year, which is great then, and every other time in your life it's like a bad thing, uh, <laughs> like we should be a little more consistent. Um, at that period of life, there's this huge explosion of growth, right? And the brain develops and like all this stuff is going on. And then it kind of stalls out for, not stalls out, but, but slows down for a while. And adolescence is the other period of just the most intense, the second most intense growth of our lives, right? The brain is exploding in growth and development. We're switching from concrete to abstract thinking. What do I mean by that? Uh, little kids are very concrete, literal thinkers, right? Like my... Uh, I remember my brother one time walking in on him, and he was praying to accept Jesus into his heart again. I was like, what are you doing? And he was like, I'm, I'm accepting Jesus into my heart. I was like, but you've already done that. He was like, yeah, I do it every day. And I was like, why would you do that every day? He was like, because somebody else might be becoming a Christian, and he might be going into their heart. And... <laughs> And, yeah, we're like, ah, but my brother apparently was okay with all these other people losing Jesus and going to hell. Like, 
Let's get on the same page here. No. Right? Like he was a very concrete thinker. And somewhere around early you know, adolescence, the brain starts to switch into being able to handle more abstract thoughts, uh, wrestling with deeper questions and more abstract things. And, and that, I mean, one of the challenging things with middle school, if any of you have ever worked with middle schoolers, is there isn't like a, this is the age where the switch gets flipped. So you can be in a room with 11, 12, or 13-year-olds, and they are all over the map in where it comes to concrete and abstract thinking. And it kind of switches from day to day sometimes, too, right? So there's a lot going on, but it gets even deeper than that. Uh, discoveries in recent decades have told us a lot more about brain development, which I just find fascinating. For the longest time, uh, it was assumed that by the time we were 10, 12 years old, the brain was done developing. And part of the reason for this is they weren't doing scans or studies on any brains other than uh, you know, people with severe issues. And so we just thought the brain is done at like 11, 12 years old. And it turns out it's not. In recent decades, as we have developed technologies that we can safely scan and map and, and figure out what's going on, uh, what we've discovered is that when we hit puberty, you guys are like, what did we wake up early for <laughs> to talk about? It was awful enough to go through the first time, and now we've got to talk about it again. The, uh, when we hit puberty, the brain goes through this surge of development where it goes into overdrive of creating neurons, producing millions of additional neurons, far more than what we need. And then in the following years, there's kind of this winnowing process where the brain kills off a lot of these extra neurons to get back to the normal level of what we'll have as an adult. And during that process, essentially what happens is uh, you use it or you lose it. Right, that as the brain kind of settles into uh, the hard wiring of what it's going to be for your life, the neural pathways that are not being used, those are the ones that kind of die off and disappear and reabsorb and whatever. And the ones you are using kind of lock into place. Like if you've ever wondered, uh, I used to wonder, you know, as, as I've studied Old Testament history and really like ancient Israelites, their school process was just memorizing essentially the entire Old Testament, right? Like they could, oral traditions, they could memorize long. Man, I can't remember three items on a grocery list, right? When I go, I got to write it down. And, and there's a part of me that used to be like, why can't I should just be able to do this? Well, I never flexed that part of my brain when my brain was going to, like I am, my brain is literally wired in a different way than what the ancients were because we use it in different ways today than they did then, right? Well, here's why this is a big deal. Generation Z is the first generation to have been immersed in technology from their earliest memories, right? Uh, they have learned to access and use information in far different ways than previous generations. Uh, they've been present on social media from a far earlier age. And essentially, they are the first generation to have their brains fundamentally wired in a way different than any other previous generation in history, right? Because of 
the way they're using, the way they're accessing information, the way they're navigating information, it's just fundamentally different than any of us have, right? And so their brains, as the neurons are fired, they're just hardwiring in a different way. So like, if you've ever looked at a kid, man, like, I do not understand what is going on in this kid's brain, it's because you don't. <laughs> like, you are just, we are just wired differently. I think that's an important thing for us to be thinking about. Not in a negative way. Like everything I'm going to say today is not really, uh, my intent is not really being like, ah, oh, these are all the horrible things. No, it's, the intent is, how are we viewing this culture? Because each generation is a different culture, right? Uh, generation X has significant kind of stereotypical differences from boomers and millennials. Uh, we hate both of them. No, just kidding. <laughs> Millennials are very different, right? Like there are, the reason we mark our different generations is we are kind of stereotypically, uh, largely, I mean, of course, there's going to be differences on individual basis, but in a lot of ways, there are some significant differences from generation to generation just based on the world we grew up in, the experiences that shaped us, the foundational moments in each of those generations and how they impact us, right? Uh, the goal here isn't to go, man, these are all the problems with young people. The goal is to be like, these are opportunities, right? As we understand them, it shapes how we can reach out and connect with them and understand them. Uh, it can also kind of shape like, man, all these times where I've tried to force them to be like me, it was probably not the best way to go because it's literally going against the way they're wired. One of the things that I love about young people is throughout history, young people have kind of rocked the generations before them. They ask challenging questions, they make people uncomfortable, they push at boundaries. Uh, young people see through trite or condescending answers. If you're not honest, they see it, they'll call you out on it. Uh, it would be so much easier if they would just blindly accept things because we said so, like they did when they were seven. Did somebody say amen? Oh. <laughs> I thought I heard an amen. It would make it easier. Uh, as we get older, we get comfortable, right? I, I remember, so I used to be the huge, like, tech nerd. Well, I'm still kind of a tech nerd. But uh, I've been using the same video editing software company for, like, 20 years now. And every year they update the software and periodically they really overhaul it. And I used to be really excited about that every year, like what's gonna be new? And, and I vividly remember about a decade ago, uh, they were announcing the next version of it and I, uh, I gotta learn this again? Like, it was good enough. Right? The uh, Douglas Adams, if you're familiar, he wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, series of books. He wrote once uh, in one of his books, The Salmon of Doubt, I've come up with a set of rules that describe our reactions to technologies. One, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works. Two, uh, anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary and you can probably get a career in it. Three, anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. <laughs> right. Anybody feel that one? The, um, so teens can make us uncomfortable sometimes. They can push us out of our, uh, they bring change. They have different ideas. They have different music. They have different thoughts. They question why we do things. And we might be uncomfortable because we don't have great answers, 
right? Have you ever had a teen athlete, like, why do we do this? And you're like, internally, you're thinking, I don't actually know. That is a good question. Now, externally, you're like, because I said so. Like, just do it. The, uh, stop asking me questions that I don't want to face the reality of not knowing the answer to. Uh, they, uh, they have different energy. There's messiness, right? That they, as, as young people are trying out all these different things and they're making mistakes and they're learning from things, there's just messiness in that. They're, they're too honest. You know where you stand with teens. Uh, you know, I've laughed for years that uh, part of why I like talking to a room of teenagers versus a room of adults is I know the moment I've lost the room of teenagers. <laughs> You guys are all super polite. You I could be just awful, and you're mentally going over, what are we going to have for lunch, and the shopping list, and tomorrow I need to. But outwardly, you're like, ooh. <laughs> yeah? Teens. Man, there was one kid who used to always be like, <laughs> and he was proud of it. I, I was like, this is not new information, man. I'm going over. Like, this is... Oh, man. Uh, and yet, but I also love, uh, you know, we, of course, we just had the report Sunday last Sunday. And I had multiple people afterwards tell me, I love how honest teens are. And, and I was laughing. And they were like, they'll just get up there and they'll say anything. You know, like, they, you know, and some of the stuff that you go, oh, man, I wouldn't have said that in front of a room full of people. But... It's great because we learn what they're thinking, what's going on, what they're processing. Uh, Jesus was born to two incredible teenagers. Mary and Joseph were probably around the ages of 14 and 17, right? Because those were kind of the cultural ages people got married then. God used young people to do amazing things over and over in Scripture. The disciples were most likely uh, teens. There's a really fascinating passage in Matthew 17, 24 through 27, uh, where it was time to pay the temple tax. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, we need to pay the temple tax. And, uh, and so Jesus does all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. But it skips to the end of the passage. And Jesus is like, hey, we don't want to offend them. So he goes down, uh, catches a fish. They open the mouth of the fish. You'll find a large silver coin. Take it and pay the tax for both of us. Right? Well, there were 12 disciples and Jesus. So why isn't he paying a temple tax for 20, for 13 people? That silver coin was the amount you would pay for two people. Well, you only had to pay the temple tax if, ah, now I'm blanking out, if it was if you were 20 or older or 21 or older. But essentially, this is one of the key reasons that a lot of theologians are like, yeah, those disciples, 11 of them were probably teenagers. That's probably why Peter was a little bit louder, because he was older and thought he could tell them all what to do. The uh, oldest child syndrome, right? The, um, and it makes sense. Uh, we miss, when we look at the New Testament, just how Jewish Jesus was and how he approached things, because we have gotten kind of used to and desensitized to what happened in the New Testament. It wasn't a coincidence that Jesus waited until he was 30 years old to begin his public ministry. That's when rabbis typically began their public ministry in ancient Israel. When they recruited disciples, they typically recruited 17-year-olds. Right? And so most of the disciples, Jesus seems to have kind of followed that pattern. Most of them were probably 17 to 18 years old. 
And yet, this is the crew that after Jesus died and rose again, uh, he left with the great commission to launch the church, to plant the church, to, to start this incredible ministry. And it exploded onto the scene, going from a handful of followers to a church of thousands in the space of days. As we get older, we get comfortable, we get stable, we like things to be predictable, but teens, we can learn something from them. And there's so, you know, I love, uh, I've been able to work with teens in this church for a long time now. And there's so many things I love about our young people. We could not have a children's ministry without our teen volunteers, right? Like uh, our children's ministry would be in significant trouble if we said one day, hey, teens can't serve in there anymore. Uh, we would have to start refusing children because there just wouldn't be enough people. They teach, they lead, they share their faith. Like I got to watch one of our, some of our teens lead children to Christ in Alaska two weeks ago. And that was an incredible thing to happen. The children in our children's ministry think church and following God is cool, not because of any of us, right? Because they look at the teens and go, wow. And they're impressed when they see them sharing their faith and leading worship and doing different things. They go, man, it gives them something to look forward to and aspire to. Uh, I had more examples, but then I'm going to run out of time. The majority of young people, I already said this, come to faith by the time uh, they're 18 years old. And yet, many of them leave the faith uh, graduate from the faith, as some people put it, when they head off to college. Uh, we may be planting the seeds, but the American church is weak at creating environments that build long-lasting faith. Uh, and it's getting worse. In 2017, the CIRP freshman survey found that 31% of incoming freshmen, so incoming freshmen to college, uh, identified themselves as religiously unaffiliated, which is triple the rate uh, identified in 1986, right? Like it's accelerating. And part of the concern about that too is, man, if they're already unaffiliated as a freshman, high, uh, freshman in college, it means that they left the faith uh, earlier in high school than, than uh, once they were in college. I'm not talking to you. The, uh, these numbers have just increased since the COVID-19 pandemic. And they're still doing the research, and we're really going to know the full effect in the coming years as they continue to survey and study the data. But what they are seeing already is that uh, there are significantly higher rates of young people leaving the church, leaving faith. Uh, the combined effects of the pandemic, growing ugliness in politics, in churches, right? Uh, fighting about Black Lives Matter movement, each of which... Uh, saw poor uh, each of these issues, politics, COVID, Black Lives Matter, race issues, each saw poor responses from many churches and Christians uh, have served to chase more young people from our church bodies. For far too many Christians in America, the Great Commission has been replaced with the idols of comfort and power. Um, I thought it was kind of fascinating. Brian McLaren wrote in a book, uh, he was talking about America's emphasis on military dominance, which isn't the focus of today, right? But in 1948, George Kennan, uh, which was one of our leading foreign policy uh, planners uh, in the 20th century, uh, said, 
We have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships will, which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. And here's why I think this is significant. Uh, America, the US, more so than many countries in the world, has a individualistic attitude, right? It's, it's all about number one, it's all about me. It, it, you know, we'll sacrifice family, we'll sacrifice friends. We'll, as a culture, I'm not saying you individually, Although, Roger, I do have some concerns. No, just kidding. I was like, where do you go? <laughs> yeah. uh, but as a culture, we kind of value the, the person that looks out for number one, who goes uh, at all costs. And, and our culture bleeds into our faith, whether we realize it or not. We're, we're affected by it. And it would seem that many American Christians have a similar attitude they're fine with change as long as it does not disrupt the level of disparity that allows them to live the way they currently do. Right? We're, we're fine with change as long as it doesn't affect me, as long as it doesn't affect my income, as long as it doesn't affect my status of living, as long as it doesn't affect my comfort, as long as it doesn't affect my ability to do what I want to do, and I'm going to get very nervous. Even if it hasn't affected me yet, but I have a perception of, man, this might impact me in some way. And the problem with this, beyond the obvious conflict with Christ's words, is the contrast between this approach to life with many of our generations in the US and the core values of Generation Z. That there are some differences in how they look at things. And here's my concern. We're called to be aliens and strangers of this world, right? Citizens of God's kingdom. Our first priority is to reach this world for Christ, and when we let our focus shift to these other things, when we're known more for our politics, when we're known more for what we're against than what we're for, when we're known uh, more for losing sight of, of what is most important, when it comes to young people, are we viewing them as a mission field and ourselves as missionaries? Some of you know uh, my family spent five years serving with a mission organization whose primary goal was to reach unreached people groups. Um, my parents served because they were considered short-term. That was a shorter-term commitment. They served, served as teachers for missionary kids. But it still gave us an up-close view of what many of these missionaries were going through to reach these unreached people groups. Uh, this is the Manhui people group there in uh, the Chaco of Paraguay, where my family lived there for a little over a year, year and a half or so. Um, it was just a few hundred people, uh, super primitive. They lived in, uh, this would actually be one of the nicer houses. Uh, just dirt floors, mud bricks uh, thrown together. A lot of them just lived outside on the ground. Uh, a lot of them were running around naked. I'm not gonna use those photos today. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. So. But the, uh, what, what's fascinating to me is over those few years down there, I saw very different levels of cultural integration from different missionaries in different contexts, right? And the ones that I saw that were the most effective in building bridges and connecting with primitive people groups, there was one family, uh, a friend of mine, he grew up with, and they took me out there, the Chimani in Bolivia, and I got to spend a week out there seeing the way they lived and, and what they did. And, and his family 
moved into, they lived in the jungle with the tribe, and they had a dirt floor, and they had the thatch root. They built their house the way the uh, Chimani built their homes. And they lived the way they ate the food, they did, you know, they dressed a little more. Uh, but, they, you know, he was pointing out different things in the house, and he was like, yeah, that's where the snake lived. And I was like, whoa, what? He was like, yeah, 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 no, you want a snake living in your roof, because uh, then it eats all the other stuff. I was like, I don't think I would feel good about the snake being able to just drop down on me while I'm sleeping. I have a real, me and Indiana Jones, we're the same. <laughs> so... But we kind of get, we, we look at that and we go, yeah, of course they're going to great lengths to build bridges and reach these people. Uh, they're sacrificing a lot of their personal preferences. They're sacrificing uh, comforts and luxuries and different things that they could have to reach this. Why? Because they get that the most important thing is that the Chamani uh, experience Jesus, that they're connected with the Savior that created them that eternity is far more important than this brief window of time and whether or not we have the best this or the best that or whatever. Um, I want to suggest that Generation Z is kind of its own people group, right? And are we making the same kinds of sacrifices to reach other generations that we see as very natural for missionaries to do when they go to different culture groups? Right? Or are we willing to you know, compromise on some of the less critical issues or uh, empathize in different ways for the sake of the gospel, or are we more concerned with making them think like us, behave like us, dress like us, act like us, do what we want them to do? I think there's uh, some important things that we should note about Generation Z. When I say that different generations have different things that kind of Saying now we could go, we could spend a whole hour looking at what each generation has that kind of stands out about them. There's eight characteristics that kind of broadly uh, represent or significant about Generation Z that I think are important for us to know. Uh, 48% are members of racial or ethnic minorities. It is the most racially and ethnically diverse generation in American history, far and away. Which is why you see so much talk about race and racism in younger generations. Because uh, when we react to things on social media, when we react to protests or legislation or things, the Supreme Court ruled, whatever we're reacting to, young people, Generation Z, are going, you are reacting to me or you're reacting to my best friend. Right, like there is a much more personal connection there than some of us sometimes realize, especially in a predominantly white church. Uh, they're the most racially and ethnically diverse generation. They're radically inclusive. They value unity. Now we tend to, older generations tend to not like that about Generation Z, but if you look at the positive sides to that, there is a lot of value to people valuing other people and wanting to include people and being more aware of what other people are thinking and feeling. They're the first truly post-Christian generation in America, right? Just statistically and everything, the, the, the connections have been really dropping with each generation, but this is the first generation that is far, far more likely to have never set foot in a church, to have never uh, heard 
any uh, church or, or uh, Christian history or lessons, uh, you, can, you know, I can never use the phrase when I'm teaching teenagers, well, you all know the story of Adam and Eve, or you all know the story of Samson. I, I can't use, because then, guaranteed, there are some kids in the room that are going to feel like, oh, is there something wrong with me that I don't know this? Right? It is not unusual for me at different times over the years to have teens uh, come up to me and be like, hey, man, you keep saying a name of something and then a bunch of numbers and everybody starts flipping pages. What are you talking about? Right? And like, I just, I had to learn, oh, man, I can't take it for granted uh, that kids have had the same kind of roots and things planted in their lives that we have. Uh, they have a deep hunger to change the world and believe each person is able to contribute. This is why uh, I think it's part of the reason why we've seen our mission trips grow so much in recent years, right? Uh, because there is a deep hunger to make a difference. Young people, it's not just about exciting to travel places. They want to make a difference. They want to impact things. Uh, and that's a great thing. Like, we could be learning from that, but it's also a really great way to open the door to faith because they, they grab onto these opportunities and learn about Christ through them. They're incredibly strong multitaskers. Uh, this drives me nuts. They're able to handle multiple things at the same time, a conversation, scrolling social media, doing homework, listening to music, podcast, you know, it, the, uh, maybe some of you have had this conversation with a kid. I, I mean, I remember, you know, I was ahead of my time uh, going to a Christian college, and I could listen to music and do homework at the same time, and my uh, boomer professors were like, that's impossible. You can't be doing that. Like, you can't be pumping stuff into your ears. And, and, and it was mystifying to me that they didn't understand that the music was helping me focus. Man, kids today can have the social media open, the laptop going, a TV on, and music on, and still getting it done. Why? Because their brains are literally wired differently than ours are, right? They've been using their neurons differently. So <clears throat> it doesn't mean that every kid doing that is doing it effectively, right? To be clear, the grades are going to reflect one way or the other. But they are able to multitask better than previous generations when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, they're open to guidance and coaching if there's a foundation of trust built between them and the one teaching them, right? Uh, young people, now, I mean, this is true of teenagers in general over the years. Uh, as an adult, we tend to, if we need help with something, we will go, I will go find an adult that can help, that has the skills or whatever to help me deal with it. In fact, I would prefer I don't know that adult and I never have to see them again. Uh, that is the way my pride is wired. <laughs> Teenagers are not the same way. Like they'll tell me if they have a problem, they'll go to Google, they'll go to their friends first. Uh, they want a layer of trust built long before they're going to open up to you about some. That's why, you know, part of what I love about our small group ministry here is that, you know, when we, when an adult starts meeting with these kids in sixth grade, there's a bunch of years there where sometimes it's really like, am I, am I accomplishing anything here, right? Uh, but the payoff starts happening as that trust is built. And suddenly these kids are willing to go to these adults that they have a long history with that they wouldn't have been otherwise. But they are open to guidance and coaching. Uh, they are hooked 
to their screens, phones, computers, CVs, etc. Unlike previous generations, technology has been pervasive in every aspect of their lives from a very early age. Now, my pet peeve is uh, we tend to, you know, all of us this age tend to look at, oh, what's the matter with them? They're on their phones. When I first came here and then people learned that, you know, it was pointless coming to me with this complaint, adults used to always be coming to me and be like, man, all these kids playing on their phones during the church services, you need to do something about that. And I was like, first off, it's not my responsibility in the church service. Like, it is when it's like in youth group and stuff, but at, I'm not just responsible for the teens in general 24-7. They have parents. <laughs> like, come on. The, uh, but the reason they stopped coming to me is I was like, I got to be honest, I sit in the balcony and I usually see more adults playing on their phones than kids. So, so it's like, I was like, until we can get the adults to stop doing it, how are we going to tell the kids not to, right? Uh, so we're all kind of hooked to our screens to different degrees. Uh, in general, some of you are going to be like, I'm not hooked. And it's like, all right, you're not. But the rest of us are. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty as charged. We're going to start a support group. Uh, they deeply value honesty and transparency. Um, and part of the reason is like they can fact check us far more effectively than previous generations, right? Like, you know, the, you, man, we can, we can fact check a sermon or a message or what someone is saying in real time, right? Just be like, tru, 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 tru. right. <laughs> So it's interesting. In 2018, a Barna study found these opinions of the church among Generation Z uh, teenagers. So this is how young people view the church. 53% believe the church seems to reject much of what science tells us about the world. This is one of the top reasons that young people leave uh, the faith when they leave uh, high school and go to college. They're confronted with scientific evidence that seems really compelling, and they've grown up in churches that are like, either you believe God or you believe that. You can't have both. Uh, that's part of the reason why we did the Faith and Science Summer Series a few years ago, to go, like, how can we navigate this stuff more effectively? 41% believe the church is overprotective of teenagers. Uh, and by that, that can mean a lot of different things, but I think one of the biggest ways is, you know, we just need to be more honest with them. I, I remember... Uh, at one church I was serving at, there was a, uh, uh, well, I was about to be overprotective with all of you guys. There was a youth leader who was having an affair. And uh, it wasn't me, like, just to be clear. Uh, but I remember, so, like, as we became aware of it, the youth leader was immediately no longer allowed to be uh, associated with the youth group anymore. And, and they were removed from some other church positions of leadership they were in. And, and there was some church discipline going on. And, uh, and I remember the senior pastor, we agreed deeply on this one. Um, but I was young and new enough that uh, I, I wasn't quite sure. You know, I was like, maybe I'm wrong. But looking back, I was right. Uh, <laughs> the arrogance of youth and age all rolled up in one. Um, he told me, you're not allowed to tell the teens why he's no longer a youth leader. Just tell them he can't do it anymore. And I was like, What? And uh, he was like, yeah, you're not, you, you can't tell them that. He was like, tell them that they're going to start, their imaginations are going to go wild. They're going to be picturing stuff, thinking about stuff. And I was like, first off, no. The, uh, no more so than any of us. Like, come on. But here's the problem with that approach is all those kids found out, right? Like, it was, it was public knowledge. 
it was going around, but what they learned from our lack of transparency and honesty was, well, we can't talk to the church about it, right? <clears throat> that we don't give young people sometimes enough credit to handle some of the stuff going on. Like, we would connect them better if we're honest about what's going on, that we don't need to be quite as overprotective. 42% believe the people at church are hypocritical. Yeah, right? A lot of us are like, yeah, not in this room, but all those people up there. The, uh, right? Because they hear us saying one thing and then doing another. They see us saying this is important, but then doing the, uh 32% believe the church is not a safe place to express doubts. I would like to think our church is a little bit safer than most. Um, but in general, young people feel like, man, if there's one place that is not safe to express this stuff, it's at church. Their deep desire for honesty and transparency make this list kind of make sense, right? Uh, and what's the point of all this? We need to know and understand these things about Generation Z if we're going to be a church that creates an atmosphere that reaches young people and helps them build a lasting faith. Uh, that we need to have a little bit more sensitivity around some of these topics, right? That, that uh, how we handle our responses when things hit the news about politics or about race or whatever is having in mind, man, what are the young people hearing me say right now? What am I communicating with my reaction about what I think is most important, right? Would people be able to look at my social media and my conversations and the things I do and know, would they look at me and go, man, that guy is a deeply devoted Christian, or would they just be like, ah, that guy's a really deeply devoted Democrat or Republican, that guy's a really deeply devoted uh, Star Trek fan. Um, right, the, the list could go on and on. Now, uh, how do, so let's get to the real question now that we have 10 minutes left. How do we create an atmosphere that fosters lifelong faith, a faith that sticks into adulthood? And all of this other stuff is just kind of touching the iceberg, but I think it shapes how we approach what I'm about to share, uh, and that we're, what we're going to be exploring over the rest of this summer. There's been a lot of research. There's a, a lot of research pointing to a lot of different reasons why young people have lackadaisical faith, uh, why they're leaving the first. The number one thing is that they find that young people emulate the faith of the adults around them. So anytime that we start criticizing, oh, why are teenagers like this or that, it's like, ah... Well, they're learning it from us, right? The uh, yeah, like you know, if we uh, you know, I've talked to people before that have been like, I don't understand why you know my kids don't value church attendance, and and the the blunt side of me, I'm way too nice sometimes, but the blunt side of me wants to be like, well, I get it, like everything in the world pulls your family away from church, you know, vacation, work, fun, concert, this that. Not that any of those things individually are bad, but the cumulative effect of, man, if anything else comes up more interesting, church goes, well, of course they don't think it's important, right? That, you know, if, if I say to my young person, hey, man, like, you need to be in a small group, it's super important for your faith, but they never see us doing it, they're like, is it really that important? Like, if it was so important, you'd be plugged in. Uh, so there's, they learn from what we do far more than what we say. So there's, there's a lot of things that we could look at that kind of lead kids away. What I find fascinating, they did uh, the Fuller Youth Institute for a few decades now, 
um, has been doing a ton of research, and then Christian Smith did a massive research project as well, and uh, far more reaching, studying the faith of young people throughout America, not just Christian, but all faiths, and was looking at and found that 8% of religiously affiliated young people uh, have devoted faith, right? Um, committed, lifelong devoted faith, 8% of them. And what I think is interesting is look at that 8% and go, what do they have in common? Even though they're widely different young people, what do they have in common? And maybe that gives us some clues of ways that we can build more effective bridges. And there's four things that we can learn from those 8% uh, that they have in common that can impact how we view church. Uh, the first is meaningful adult Christian connections. Second, they attend the intergenerational worship services weekly or more. You go, how do you attend it more than weekly? Well, if there's multiple services. Uh, Wednesday nights. Uh, currently involved in children or youth group. Uh, praise and read scripture twice a week or more. Let's dive into this a little bit more. And you're going to get nervous when I spend a whole lot of time on number one. Two through four are a lot shorter time. Uh, number one, meaningful adult Christian connections. Dr. Mark Canister, uh, he's a youth ministry professor at Gordon College, wrote in his book, Teenagers Matter, for many young people, growing up in a postmodern culture is about growing up alone. This is an emotional aloneness that seeps into the core of one's being. Right? Where, uh, whether we realize it or not, so often we're segregated by age, community, status, young people get very little adult attention, uh, usually unless it's negative, right? Um, the good kid nobody needs to deal with. And so uh, here's the deal. We're all having connections with young people all the time, whether we realize it or not. Uh, when we're passing by them, when they overhear us, when they're seeing what we're doing online, uh, in the halls, in the sanctuary. Uh, the challenge is how do we make these connections meaningful? Dr. Kara Powell writes, kids who retain faith have five or more adults investing in them spiritually and personally between the ages of 15 and 18. Uh, how are we investing in our young people? This is part of the reason why I think our small groups are so important, right? And our youth ministry is so important. Uh, but in addition, for those of us that are sitting in services, are they, you know, we all kind of sit in the same places every week. Are there young people that sit around you? Do you know them? Like, have you interacted with them? Have you uh, talked to them, asked them, uh, you know, who are their friends? What are they doing? Like, the real easy question right now is, what was it like for you on the mission trip? Because most of them went. Um, these adults that are investing in them spiritually are... Uh, knowing their names, sometimes going to their sports meets, musical performances. Church is uh, one of the few places where we really can have this intergenerational connection. The key to ministering to young people, uh, I think, is in Galatians 5.5. 5. Uh, but we who live by the Spirit eagerly wait to receive faith, by faith, the righteousness God has promised to us. Here's what I like about this. We eagerly wait to receive by faith, right? Uh, when we work with you, if you've ever been around a young person, man, there's just no predicting when it's going to click. 
right? Like you can keep saying the thing and doing the thing and being patient and praying and it might click when they're 13 and it might click when they're 22. Uh, you know, for me, it was somewhere in my early 20s where it really became real. And I kind of danced around it a lot of years and for a few years there, I swore off faith altogether. And it just, we just need that time to be consistent, to go, man, just because a kid declares something one day, and that can be a whole range of topics, right? That can be about stuff about, uh, you know, whether they declare they're gay, whether they declare they're trans, whether they declare they hate God, whether they declare they're, you know, the different political party than you. Um, that doesn't mean what they're declaring in that moment is necessarily defining them for life, right? And how we respond can really shape whether or not we're going to continue having a voice in their life or whether we've slammed the door shut. And so, uh, you know, part of this, when I talk about the faith aspect to it, is, man, we got to keep planting those seeds and watering and being patient and loving and, and, and embracing so that when the moment comes that they're finally ready, it just takes off. Um, the second one, attend intergenerational worship services weekly or more. Uh, Dr. Kara Powell wrote, she was one of the ones that's done a ton of this research, said the closest our research has come to that definitive silver bullet in uh, seeing young people have faith at stakes is uh, this finding. For high school and college students, there is a relationship between attendance at church-wide ser worship services and sticky faith. Uh, in other words, and I've heard her in conferences talk about, we can't even explain why. But there's just something about that regular practice of being in that room with a whole bunch of other generations worshiping God, even if it doesn't seem like it's clicking, right? This is why, for me, it doesn't bother me a bit that there is a crowd of teenagers sitting in the balcony on Sunday morning. It doesn't matter if they're sitting with their parents or not. If they're in the room, they're building that value, that, that connection of like, man, this is important. And I might not get it in this moment, but there's something kind of driving down into them that this is valuable, this is significant. Uh, and how do we all impact that, right? Because if you're not the kid's parent, you can't force them to go, but you can model it, right? That, that young people see the same people there week after week, not sporadically. Being warm and filled with grace, right? Rather than focusing on what they're wearing, whether or not they have a hat on, uh, you know, how they're behaving in the service because they're not going to be perfect. They're not as socially whatever as we are sometimes. Um, <coughs> being warm and expressing grace towards young people in those moments so they still feel welcomed and desired in the service even if they're not necessarily being exactly like we would want them to be, right? Because there's something deeper going on. Putting the spiritual needs of others first. 1 Corinthians 8 talks a lot about that for the sake of the gospel, we sacrifice some of our preferences for the sake of others to come and know God. And so sometimes with teenagers, man, it means, man, I would much rather have it this way. But isn't it worth the sacrifice to have these young people in the building week after week? Number three, currently involved in a religious youth group. I really like this one. Job security right here. <laughs> Uh, I added it to the list. No, just kidding. Uh, here's, here's how I like to explain it sometimes uh, to people. Is that Student Quest is our Sunday morning hour. Small groups are our Wednesday night uh, time. 
Uh, I really view those as an investment in young people's present faith, right? That, that those relationships, the topics are much more pointed at what a young person is going through. Uh, it, it creates those adult relationships where they can have someone to go to in addition to their parents. Um, because that's important, right? Like, I really appreciate, as much as it's weird to me to think that my sons have some other adults they might talk to about some things they don't talk to me about, I'm sure glad they're talking to someone who's a Christian about it, right? Uh, because as much as I want them to tell it all to me, I remember when I was a teenager, man, there's stuff I will take to the grave before I tell my parents. Uh, of course, my kids are perfect, so that's what... Uh, <laughs> I already told the coffee story, so they're not. Uh, but I really view this as an investment in their present faith, prioritizing this, right? I think the worship service, of course it impacts present faith as well, but I also view that as an investment in their future faith, their long-term faith. Number four, praise and read scripture twice a week or more. And I love this passage. Now, the disciples were all good Jewish boys, right? They grew up in Jewish families and, and uh, Israelite, and so they would, have, they would have been taught to pray, but there was something different about the way Jesus prayed, so much so that uh, once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. They, they were essentially going, God, you gotta, you got to teach us what you're doing, because there's something different about how you're praying, Jesus, Right? That, that there's something far more, you know, rather than Jesus telling them, you got to pray, you got to pray, you got to pray, year after year, he just modeled every day he would go off and pray quietly. And even if you look in the Gospels, initially he starts off doing it by himself, and then he'd bring a few of them along, and then he'd have all of them along. But they were seeing him have this pattern of every day he turns to God in prayer, so much so that finally one day they're like, we need this. Right? And, and where I'm going with this is uh, we need to be modeling to young people the importance of prayer and reading scripture. That, that I, I love Heather tells the story sometimes of how growing up, even though her dad went to work before she was even up in the morning, he got up at like four in the morning. She knew he was doing his devotions every day because he would have his Bible out and it would be changing pages. He was working his way through and so even though she wasn't even directly seeing it, she was aware that every morning he was starting off in the Bible and praying. Now, what I think is really fascinating about this is uh, I had a, a Bible school teacher once that was telling us all that he would do four hours of devotions every morning, which I thought was, and this sounds like a really unchristian thing to say, but I just thought that was excessive and impossible. And it wasn't until years later that I realized he was counting his prep for the Bible class he was about to teach as his devotion. So really, he was a procrastinator putting it off until the morning of to go over his stuff. So really, but whatever, I digress. There isn't some like, you have to do three hours a day or two hours a day. It's, it's just about the pattern of it, the regularity of it. There isn't some magic number. It can be five minutes. It can be much more, but doing it at least a couple times a week, that practice uh, really seems to help create an environment where faith sticks. Now, again, we don't get young people to do that every day by forcing them to do it, 
right? We don't get it to happen by saying, like, you sit down and you read your Bible and you like it. Uh, but when we model it, when we keep doing it, and sometimes it feels like, man, is this even getting through? But just doing that pattern over and over, not being obnoxious about it, but at least doing it in a way that they're aware, we gradually set that example. I remember one time when I was little, uh, apparently, I don't remember this part of it, but I do remember my dad from then on periodically showing me the check that he was about to put in the offering plate. And the reason was, is when I was like 10 years old, apparently for my birthday, I got like 20 bucks, which was a lot of money in 1985 for a poor uh, pastor's kid. And, and uh, I was so excited, and he was like, all right, well, you got to put $2 of that in the offering on Sunday. And apparently I made a face, you know, like what I'm making now, and he was like, what's wrong? And uh, according to my parents, I said, why do I have to give $2 when you only give pennies and nickels? And the reason was, is he realized in the moment, like when we would go to church on Sunday, he would just give us whatever change was in his pocket, and we could throw it in the plate. And, uh, but what we weren't seeing is he was just sticking his check in the offering, like in the office earlier in the week, because usually he was up front or he was doing different things. So then he started periodically showing me the check to be like, this is what I'm given, which blew my mind because we were super low income. We were a family of six. And if we went out for pizza, we bought one pizza. That is not fun. Like there were three boys and one girl. The girl was the only one happy. The, uh, we had no money, so it used to floor me when I would see these checks for like a few hundred dollars going to the church. And, uh, but it was that part of that just modeling, praying and reading scripture twice a week or more, even if it's just a little bit, uh, that, that helps create that environment. So as we wrap up today, and I went, whoa, way over, uh, <laughs> young people are an important part of our church today. Sometimes people say that thing of teenagers are the future of the church. They're not. They're part of the body today, just like each of the other generations are. And I think over the course of this summer, as we hear from different speakers, and make sure you grab one of these on the way out there on the table, uh, we have a bunch of different youth ministry professors, veteran youth workers. Uh, next Sunday, we have a counselor coming, Dr. Dave Wiedis who uh, leads Serving Leaders. It's a great counseling organization in the region. But he's going to come talk about gender identity issues. And I love that because uh, sexuality and gender identity issues are a bigger issue for Generation Z than any previous generation. And so how do we understand that so that we can navigate conversations more effectively with them? And you know that's not all going to be solved in one hour. But we'll get a little bit more. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for young people. We thank you that we're part of a church that has so many young people. And we ask that uh, over the course of the summer that you would help us to learn more and more effective ways that we can be building bridges to young people and creating an environment that really uh, produces lifelong faith. In your name, amen.